Hey, just a warning before we start. This episode includes stories about sexual harassment and assault. If you find these stories troubling and want someone to talk to, you can call the National Sexual Assault, Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service on 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. Hello, my name's Verity Firth and I'm the Executive Director of the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney. And you're listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. In today's episode, we're going to be flies on the wall. We're going to be listening to the voices of men finding out how they feel Me Too has impacted their lives and, most importantly, their behaviour. I'm joined in the studio by Ollie Henderson, our producer. Hello, Ollie. Hi, Verity. How are you doing? Very well. Uh, so, Verity, it was your decision to have a men's episode. What kind of brought you to this conclusion that we should include men in, in this podcast? Well, it was really important. People at the centre were quite passionate that we had to make sure that men's voices were heard. And there's a range of reasons for this. Obviously, this is an issue that goes beyond women. We didn't want people to feel that this podcast would, A, be of interest only to women, B, that therefore sexual assault is a women's issue, but most importantly, we didn't want people to feel we were sending a message that it's women that need to be fixed. Absolutely. The structures that exist in our society that really inhibit women's progression aren't just built by women. They're built by all of us. And this means that it's not just a women's problem. It's a, it's a problem for everyone. Exactly. Uh, our producer, Miles Herbert, did the interviews. So why don't we have a listen and see what these guys have to say? Sure. So my name's Joel. I live in Surrey Hills. I'm 30 years old and I work in video production. I felt like I've always had relatively positive relationships with women. Most of my friends seem to be women or have been over the years. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I do consider myself a feminist of, yeah, I guess I do. I just don't usually say the word out loud that often. When do you think you came to that realisation of, you know, becoming a feminist? I think when I first came to comprehend what it entailed and when I came to comprehend the enormity of what that actually meant, I considered it fairly impossible to be a contemporary thinking person and not be open to that idea. Did you struggle at all to come to terms with calling yourself a feminist? Did you find that it was controversial at all? No, I found being feminist in my way of thinking or in my way of expressing myself has been controversial, not necessarily using the word or identifying with it. I was very fascinated with feminist art when studying it and I expressed myself in some ways like that and some people found that controversial or confusing, I guess. In that first year of art school, there's a lot of vaginas and a lot of fluid-based kind of artworks and um, I decided to... I scanned my penis. And I printed it on my T-shirt. And some people in the class really liked it and thought it was a great statement as part of that overall rhetoric. And some people uh, really hated it. <laughs> Why'd they hate it? Um, they felt it was masculinist. 
at the time, my reasoning behind it was I, I was seeing kind of all these vaginas and yonic shapes being sculpted around me, and I thought that a good way to include myself in that kind of rhetoric would be to just do something very similar. But do you think that there were people in that class who didn't take it that way and they may have seen it as an expression of power? Yeah, definitely. Some people, I guess, were offended by it and felt like I was trying to, I guess, dominate the room with an icon like that. Do you think looking back, though, you may see why some people saw it as an expression of power? Definitely. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently that broached upon this issue and a popular musician exposed themselves in front of a a media group. And when this friend of mine told me that she thought it was offensive, we'd had a few wines, um, (laughs) a kind of, I, I felt completely against the idea that it was offensive. I believed that anyone had the right to be naked or uh, expose their body whenever they felt like. And we argued it for it for quite some time. But right at the end of the conversation, she told me that fairly often someone, a male exposing themselves is the last thing females see before they're abused. And at the time it clicked something in me, uh, but it took me kind of a day for that to settle in and to actually put both those concepts together and actually called her and apologised because I hadn't thought that way before. And I think that's probably the most important aspect of this whole kind of movement that's happening right now is that more than ever, uh, men should be thinking more and they've got to change quicker because society's changed a lot. But fairly, sometimes the quickest way to change is to be wrong for a moment and uh, allow yourself to be corrected or allow yourself to think about it. Are there moments for you that you look back and other moments that stick out in your mind in particular? I know you just spoke about one. Are there ones further back where you look back and think, man, what was I doing? Yeah, I guess uh, the whole of high school is <laughs> a great... A, a great e- example. I think the biggest thing for me was the way I never thought I never thought about it at all at times. Or there was a lot of times when people would tell me that some sort of abusive situation had happened to them. And I guess ten years ago, I would have just I just assumed that it was an anomaly or that it was something that. Uh, happens every day even though I was given constant evidence that it wasn't that it was something widespread and even though I'd heard it was hearing it all the time I never crossed my mind to go oh this is happening all the time and it still came as a shock to me when the me too I guess movement started in your life have you made a decision to break away from the patriarchy and how are you going about doing that I think I'm making the conscious decision I only would have really done it in a serious manner in the last few years there are several kind of reasons that I think I think I was obviously clued in quite a lot younger but 
I think if I look back on my personal relationships, I think about the kind of partners that I have had as a straight man, um, it wasn't up till my mid-20s that I started thinking about women in partnerships as an actual partner. So every partner that I had before then, I kind of allowed them to pick me because it was just something nice to have. I was like, oh, great, a, a woman. And that sounds innocent, but its I don't think it is. I think it's actually its quite objectifying. In a lot of other ways, I'd kind of started making motions to leave that way of thinking, using a lot of, I guess, a lot of the people that I follow friends-wise and, uh, by example, uh, women. But it wasn't until then that I'd really thought about finding a partner that was a human being rather than some something beautiful. And some I'd be like, oh, my God, this, this woman's really beautiful. I, I'll be with her. Do you think that way of thinking may have bled into other aspects of your relationship? Definitely. And I think it permeated the duration of the relationship. Sometimes that you can change the way you think about people, but it feels like a lot of the time the way you meet people colours the rest of the relationship quite dramatically. And I obviously have did love some of these people that I'd been in partnerships with, but it really shocked me the day I realised that I didn't identify anything else with them other than the fact that they were women that I should be with one, one uh, someone that's beautiful. And as a result, it made me pretty distant and neglectful, I'd say, in a relationship context. Were there any moments in those relationships where you were unable to really feel these, you know, these women's needs as human beings because of the way you were thinking about them? Yeah, definitely. I think for the majority of it. And I think from a... uh, One example would be uh, infidelity. Um, I guess uh, a a lack of care and attention or empathy around some things. And uh, I guess especially a sense of boredom. Uh, I've been really happy with uh, partnerships that I've had in the last few years. But I think when I meet people now, I think of it in terms of, could I sit in a lounge room with you for six hours and do nothing? What's it like walking with you? What's it like laughing with you? Or how well do you respond to a joke? Things like that. Which is the majority of your life is made up of all these other kind of events that in these prior relationships I wasn't there for because my only sense of thinking when choosing a partner was you fit this really basic criteria of being attractive and that doesn't apply to most of our day-to-day lives. And so, yeah, I guess I kind of see it all the time. And the funny thing is, is that it was quite passive a lot of the time. Like relationships just seemed to peter out, but it made me incredibly unhappy. And I wonder if there are a lot of issues in relationships that stem from this idea. Is this, is this why there are so many unhappy men or why there are is it one of the reasons behind so many cases of domestic abuse? Is it because people, by and large, haven't been thinking about 
partnerships and other people on a on a kind of equal humanist level. So you think men need to be a part of this conversation? Yeah, definitely. Otherwise, it's not a conversation. I'm Verity Firth. And I'm Ollie Henderson. And you are listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. This episode is your behind-the-scenes ticket to men's discussions of feminism after Me Too. All right, on with the show. So I'm uh, Toby Skyring. I currently do UX design for a bank, and I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. I've had conversations with some of my close male friends, and we've been talking about this whole Me Too thing and and how it's made us reflect on the fact that that our idea or definition of consent was wrong. We probably did sexually harass or, you know, assault girls in hindsight, you know, by coercing or being persistent. And that's, you know, really horrible that we did that. And, And so the Me Too thing was really powerful in at least solidifying that idea of consent. So, yeah, I have had to go back and look through lots of moments and, you know, think, Jesus, that was really horrible of me to do that and I can't believe I did that. Stuff like one of the times I'm sure would have been laying in bed with a girl, you know, cuddling and maybe even kissing and then, I guess, trying to go a bit further and then pushing my hand away, which is a no in my definition now. That's a no. At the time, I didn't think that, uh, and so I tried to do it again, you know, and I probably tried to do it multiple times after, you know, a bit more kissing and stuff. But, you know, she'd already pushed my hand away and continued to push my hand away, and it did stop there, you know, but but I I think that would have made her feel really uncomfortable, you know, and, like, it's not... You shouldn't have to do that, you know. If, if, if you get told no in any form, whether it's an action or a word, that's, that's a no. She probably had less trust for me after that as well, you know, so that's horrible. What systems do you think were in place or what do you think was going on that allowed you to not understand her point of view at that time? I didn't think that unless someone said no, it was no in a way is probably part of it. So then, you know, people not verbalizing no, which I shouldn't have to do now, of course, but at the time, that's what I thought. How did you realize it? Were you reading headlines or having conversations with women in your life post Me Too? What pushed you to think, wow, I have crossed the line of consent? It was definitely conversations with friends, male and female. The one that really sticks out is like one that I had with a very close male friend. And we were, we were basically talking about the definition of, of consent. And, and at the same time, you know, it dawned on both of us, you know, that shit we've not done that we've gone past consent and it was really sort of a horrible feeling but like also because we were there together talking about it we could keep talking about it and um i guess sort of work through those emotions and that guilt and try and make sure it was a progressive positive thing you know going forward that we we can't change what's happened and you know we can we can say sorry but importantly what we should do is call other people out, make sure that definition is shared with all of our peers. What do those conversations look like? They're normally pretty sincere and honest and, and sort of, you know, reflective conversations. And But also they're really about a lot of the time trying to get other people in the room that don't agree 
with our idea of consent to understand our point of view. So it's it's generally like an educational thing, you know. We're trying to get some of our other male friends and even female friends sometimes to understand that you know consent is this thing that you have to respect and you can't you shouldn't try and push it you shouldn't try and t- you know tow it or anything like that you should just respect it how do you as a collective a group of guys come up with this idea of consent i mean really it's it's talking to friends and understanding what would make you uncomfortable in those situations so what do you think prevented you and your friends from listening and empathizing pre-Me Too? Well, to be honest, it wasn't spoken about that much before Me Too. I don't think a lot of people were empowered enough to feel comfortable talking about it. You know, I didn't, I mean, I've, I'd heard one or two, you know, occasions of a friend going through something like that, but I mean, I was close to it then even. I, I mean, I think before Me Too, I had that, there was that doubt thing where you're like, um, you know, are they telling the truth or not? You know, that innocent until proven guilty sort of thing. And after Me Too, that changed completely. Now I, you know, I realize how rampant it is and like that was really naive of me to not sort of just empathize and listen, you know. Do you think it was easier for us to not listen and not empathize pre-Me Too Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think even now, that's what people would say. You know, they just, if they're not listening and they're not, you know, a lot of people don't even care about Me Too still. Over the past year, now there's been huge calls to prioritize women's voices over men's, which I think is undoubtedly a great thing. Absolutely. Where do you think your voice and where do you think the voice of men in this movement belong? I mean, it, it should be there equally, really, because, like, one, unfortunately, like, men have a greater impact on men, you know, like, especially stubborn men that don't, you know, don't have that idea of feminism, you know, they, they if a girl calls out a man for being, you know, sexist, a lot of the time they just put a wall up, unfortunately. Um, I mean, that's what I've seen happen. And so, you know, it's up to men to call out men as well. Uh, women should too, of course, but men are going to have that ability to, um, you know, get through those defences, especially if they're good friends. Um, and I think also it's really important for women to hear men speaking about it, you know, um, because that shows that, they're, you know, that they do have allies from both genders. Hello, it's Verity Firth, and we're back in the studio with Ollie Henderson, our producer. Hi, Verity. How was your experience as a fly on the wall? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really liked this episode, and one of the reasons I liked it so much is that I was listening to two men really fess up but be honest with themselves about their own behaviour. You know, I saw evidence of personal growth. And what I liked about it is when you really listen to their stories, what had made them grow as people was actually really simple human interactions, having a conversation with their female friends and listening with empathy, understanding and then learning 
and being able to look at their own behaviour. I thought that was really positive. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that such human moments have come out of this hashtag that really exists in such a digital space. I know, right? (laughs) I I know. And I think as much as people criticise hashtag activism, and I myself have been known to criticise hashtag activism, it did make me change my mind a little bit. Like maybe the monumental nature of the global media moment that was hashtag me too did allow for some of these conversations to begin to happen in a way that perhaps haven't happened before. And that gives me hope. Yeah, I think definitely. It's something that we kind of touched on uh, earlier in the consent episode that we did, that we haven't really had these conversations around consent yet. And Me Too was like a great opportunity to bring this dialogue to the forefront. That's right. We talked about how the, the complexity of human relationships and how ill-equipped we as a society are to have these conversations in an equal and safe space. So that is really nice to hear that those young men are beginning to have those conversations. And another thing that I liked about it was the interview with the second young man who talked about how, whether we like it or not, men do have impact on each other. So it's the conversations between men that can actually be behaviour-changing in a way that maybe conversations with outside those circles of, of male comradeship are not as effective. Yeah, it was something that I was actually hugely surprised about, uh, the conversation that happens um, between Miles and Toby, that Toby said that him and his friends are actually meeting up and talking about feminism amongst themselves with no women present and challenging each other on their behaviour and, you know taking steps to be better people and to be better feminists. I like it. I like it. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So, and it's important, you know, if Me Too has achieved at least the capacity for, you know, to be able to reach into the hearts and minds of people who aren't necessarily immediately impacted by sexism and sexual assault and consent, then that is a positive thing. For any long-lasting movement of social change, you need to be able to, to speak and to win the hearts and minds of those who aren't immediately impacted. Yeah, and I think it's only going to make the world a better place for all of us. Like we've had in conversations before, Verity, men are deeply affected by the patriarchy. It means that they can't openly talk about their feelings and their emotions. And this is something that Me Too can provide a space for them as well, like some of the conversations that these men were having amongst themselves. Yeah, I hope so. Because I think that, in fact, having those conversations will make them a lot happier in the long run if they start to understand themselves and understand their environment. Yeah, I think it'll make us all a lot happier. (laughs) This episode was a collaboration between the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. Our producers are Nina Copel, Miles Herbert and Ollie Henderson. And a big thanks to Laurel Oxley from the Centre. If you liked the show, show us some love on 2SER.com. Or if you're listening on your favourite podcast app, subscribe and leave us a review. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. <laughs>